Welcome back to the Moody Profcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Marcus Johnson. Dr. Marcus Johnson is professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute. He holds a BA in theology from Moody Bible Institute, a Master of Arts in Systematic Theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD in theology from the University of Toronto. Along with writing his doctoral dissertation on union with Christ and the theology of John Calvin, he is also the author of One with Christ, an Evangelical Theology of Salvation. He is also the co-author with Dr. John C. Clark of The Incarnation of God, The Mystery of the Gospel as a Foundation of Evangelical Theology. And he is also the co-author, again with Dr. John C. Clark, of the book A Call to Christian Formation, How Theology Makes Sense of Our World. He and his wife, Stacy live in Chicago with their three sons and serves as an associate rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva. Dr. Johnson, thank you for, so much for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Dr. Johnson, tell us how you came to fall in love with theology and find a career in working in academ- academia and in the local church ministry as well. Well, uh, for the purposes of this audience, this podcast, I think probably the best answer is that uh, I, like you, went to Moody Bible Institute as an undergraduate. And uh, probably coming to Moody, I'm not sure I would have had a real good or or, or deep understanding of what theology was exactly, but I, uh, I certainly encountered it here as an undergraduate student and fell in love with seeking to know and learn who God is. And I became enamored with it, and it was so transformative in my life that I, uh, that I, that I felt like if it were possible for me, and if it was a calling God had on my life, I wanted to pursue. I wanted to pursue theological study. I wanted to be part of what God was doing there to, to shape our hearts and minds, to be you know conformed and to the truth of who He is in His Son Jesus and by the Spirit. To be a part of that would just be a wonderful blessing. So I pursued it as far as it would go, uh, hoping the Lord. Uh, would bless it, and he did. And long story short, after pursuing, after leaving, graduating from Moody with a bachelor's degree, as you mentioned, I got a master's degree and then a PhD later on, also in theological uh, topics or theological study, and it led me back eventually to where it sort of started, hmm. which was Moody Bible Institute. And I've been teaching here for you know thirteen years now. It has been such a delight and such an honor to teach theology. I can hardly tell you. Mm, mm. So tell us some of the uh, the thought process that you were going into as you went into your Master of Divinity and went into your PhD. Was entering into academia always a question in your mind, or was it more of the focus on church ministry, or is it more, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord through each of these programs, and then if I end up in academia, that'll be amazing? Well, I probably thought of theology and theological study more in, more in academic terms. I think I had a a little bit of a short-sighted and lopsided view about what theology is because of the way direction I came into it from. So I primarily thought of it in terms of increased learning and then maybe achieving degrees that would allow me to maybe maybe teach or write going forward. What I hadn't yet grappled with in full at Moody or even in uh, the master's degree I did at, at TED's, uh, but maybe was starting to see something later in my PhD program that um, something you know now, Jonah, is all the all the great all the great uh, theologians in the history of the church that we could name 
almost every last one of them was actually a pastor or a bishop or a priest. And that that truth began to be driven home further and further into my mind and heart as I began teaching theology myself, uh, which isn't to say I wasn't involved in the church. I was, but I thought it was interesting that really nearly all the you know, most significant theologians one can think of was an ordained minister of the gospel in their church. Pretty incredible. Mm. So the idea of a professional theologian would have been foreign up until about, oh gosh, I don't know, early early 20th century, uh, because the, 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 the calling to teach theology in a classroom is always inextricably bound up with a calling uh, to serve the church in the ministry of the gospel. So as, as that truth, which was uncomfortable to, me, uncomfortable to me at some level, became more and more obvious to me, I became more and more convicted about it. And at the same time, I was delighting more and more in the church uh, because of my theological study. So those things, things went hand in hand. And so I, I, I prayed to the Lord and waited upon the Lord to see if, you know, something like ordained ministry was something he might be calling me to. Mm, mm. And in due time, that is, that is what happened. And I was, I was glad to accept what the Lord gave there. Mm. And so now, now I am an ordained minister in the Anglican church. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how you look throughout uh, church history is that many times the people that were considered the doctors of the church, yes. the theologians of the church, were almost always, in a, you know, it was, it was the link was there. Yes. It was inherent that they were or, an ordained minister. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, obviously before the Reformation, like in the yes. Catholic Church Absolutely. Um, beforehand. And you look at theologians, and the, I think the ones that have been formational for you as well, a lot of people like John Calvin that were mm-hmm. doctors of the church and also ordained ministers and emphasized the pastoral mm-hmm. nature of theology. And so mm-hmm. who would you say are some of your greatest influences um, in terms of how you've been able to form your theological thought um, and your systematic theology overall? I would say forced to pick a few, uh, probably Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, the theology of the Reformation was just crucial for me. Um, it began in some classes I took at Moody Bible Institute. I became sort of enamored with the conviction and passion and depth of the kinds of things that these reformers were saying about who Jesus is and and what the nature of God's word is. I was moved by that. And I loved the way that they talked and they took it so seriously. Of course, both of those are talking about ordained ministers. They don't think of themselves as professional theologians. They're 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 pastors in their churches. Um, and then after that, um, a less lesser-known figure, John Williamson Nevin, has been a big influence on me. He was a German Reformed pastor and theologian near and around Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the 19th century. He's written some wonderful things that are just, just beautiful and really helpful for me to think through the greatest question in the world, which is, who is Jesus, with some, with some depth. And then um, last but not least would be... Uh, T.F. Torrance, who taught at University of Edinburgh in Scotland for more than 30 years, and I think maybe one of the great theologians of the 20th century, if not more, has taught me a ton about how to um, 
think through the reality of Jesus Christ for anything and all things. I'm really grateful for. for those, so those four would probably be four most influential theologians on my own thought. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think what's notable amongst those that you mentioned is how the emphasis they also put on not just, you know, equipping the theologians of the church or the doctors of the church or the ordained ministers of the church, but also how their ministry was for for the church, for the common people. Um, and something that's something I think I've appreciated about your lectures and your methodology of teaching is how how to make theology not just an abstract concept but a lived reality into our lives, something that we live out um, through our daily practices, our lit- liturgies we attend, the way we love and interact with people. And that's something I think that's really encompasses on the topic that I really wanted to focus on today, on the topic of union with Christ. And that's something you've written a book on um, significant, that's made a significant ways within even conservative evangelical sphere, spheres. And Dr. Johnson, can you tell us um, how, what is the importance of this reviving this doctrine for the church that has seemed, that is historic and is deeply rooted in the history of the church, but over in the past maybe 200 years or so, it's been kind of underlooked and undervalued in terms of the importance it has in our lives, in our theological formation. When I began to study deep into my own roots as a you know, Protestant and evangelical, into the theology of the Reformation, I kept, I kept noticing something and how frequently, for instance, whether it was Martin Luther or John Calvin, how frequently they would talk about being united to Jesus Christ. And because of some of my own assumptions or training or maybe church background, I, I began hearing that as that sort of a that sort of a thing is something more like a, a sentiment of a kind. To be joined to Jesus Christ must be like a platitude, some kind of Christian sentimentalism. But then, but then, as I was studying these great performers, I couldn't get away from the fact that eventually I came to see that they they meant we're really joined to Jesus, and they mean not just in your soul or spirit, but your body. The whole of you is actually joined to the whole of Jesus Christ. And for them, that was the definition of what it meant to be saved. That's how we're saved, is by becoming one with Jesus Christ. They convinced me over time that uh, that is that is a core teaching of, of Holy Scripture and has been, therefore, a core teaching throughout the history of the church. And yes, even in Protestant evangelicalism, it's been a core teaching. But as you say, in the last couple hundred years, that that truth has been either obscured or maybe sentimentalized or forgotten, however you want to say it, for all sorts of different reasons. But it sure is, it was something that was so transforming for me to learn of that truth and see how much of the Bible was held together by that truth. It made sense of so many other things to me, Jonah, that that uh, I wanted to share that good news. I want to say, hey, hey, you're if you're Protestant or evangelical, this is a truth for you too. It's a truth that's ingrained in our in our DNA, and it's it's a beautiful biblical thing to recover and and take joy in. So I've spent a good deal of my 
academic career, my teaching career, my ecclesial vocation, you know, my calling in the church, trying to do some of that, that recovery project, share some of that joy. Could you tell us about some of the, the great theologians of the church and more specifically the Protestant tra- tradition um, that have emphasized this point? Um, and maybe some examples from some of the writings that you can recall about them reciting the importance of this doctrine. If uh, maybe for the purposes of this audience, we can speak of someone like uh, the, the foundational role that someone like, whatever your initial impressions may be, the profound influence that the writings of John Calvin had, say, on the subsequent Protestant and then therefore also evangelical church. In the third book of his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he makes a statement uh, almost startling when one first reads it. He says, all that Christ has done for the salvation of the human race and all that he's been given by the Father— to be our Savior, remains useless and of no value to us unless Christ is in us or we are in him. And then later later in that paragraph, he says something to the effect of, let me say it again, until we grow into one body with Jesus Christ, all that he's done is useless. So there he is beginning this third book of his justly famous institutes, saying, let's be really clear about something. Unless we're joined and truly and really joined to Jesus Christ, he can't be a savior for us. That struck me. It struck struck me, struck me hard. I wanted to know what, what did he mean by that? And why was it obvious to him that that was the case when it wasn't obvious to me when I first read it? And I don't think that would be an obvious point to many contemporary evangelicals or Christians either. That would be one example from history of that truth. That same truth resonates in the writings of Martin Luther, too. Unsurprisingly, given that Calvin was influenced deeply by Luther, read a lot of what he had uh, written, too. So, Yeah, I think something that I've deeply come to appreciate about the, uh, this framework for understanding who Christ is um, is not just understanding that this is you know, a framework for understanding our relationship with him, but also a framework for understanding salvation as a whole. And something I've noticed, and I think you've mentioned in your works as well, is how much our understanding of the process of salvation can become so Aristotelian, in a sense so judicial, in terms of it's about one plus one equals two, therefore two is the result of one plus one. Whereas when we look at the center of who God is and his Trinitarian nature, we see that he is a commune, a commune three and one, and we see that what God has done in creation and in incarnation is not just create this judicial system for salvation, but this unique relational incorporation that we've had as well through our salvation and union with Christ. Yeah, uh, this this doctrine of union with Christ, to put it in only slightly different terms than you just did, mm-hmm. highlights the truth is that God uh, 
God is a wondrous fellowship of three persons, and by, and by reason of the way that they are one makes God who he is. And somehow this awesome truth about how the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, and, and they are in one another by the communion of the Holy Spirit, becomes a truth that he literally impresses upon the world. So the, the Son of the Father is sent into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us sinners who believe in Jesus Christ, into that one great communion by being in fellowship with, by being joined to Jesus Christ. So it beautifully holds together this the biblical doctrine of who God is with how he saves us. I was, I was, really, you know, I was really impressed by that when I saw the, uh, how should we say it, the, the cohesion there, that God acts in saving us according to who he really and truly is. I just thought that was wonderful. I came to see how really richly biblical that is. Mm, mm. Yeah, and it's not just like an aspect of salvation, at least from what I recall from re- reading your book, is that it's it's also the way we interpret, interpret, sorry, interpret all of salvation as a whole. And you, the title of your book is you, One with Christ, an Evangelical Theology of Salvation. Can you describe for us how understanding salvation as union with Christ changes the various aspects of the process of salvation we can have? Um, and obviously we're working from a Protestant you know, presupposition in terms of the theological categories we're working from. But you could predestination, election, um, salvation, sanctification, glorification. Could you walk us maybe through in a somewhat chronological manner how – Union with Christ changes all these different aspects. And for clarification for the audience, this is pretty much how Dr. Johnson breaks down his CCO2 class. Um, But could you give us maybe a short crash course? Uh, Pretty much that whole process and how union with Christ affects those different areas. Yeah, that's a big question. So let me try to do that by using some of the typical categories we use for thinking about what it means to be saved. Maybe primarying among them would be a doctrine like justification, also doctrines like sanctification or glorification or resurrection or eternal life. All the different ways we speak about the glories of being saved. What I argue in the book and, of course, do in class is what I was taught by some of the people I've been describing so far in this podcast is I was taught that all of these wonderful gospel realities are best seen in terms of being blessings. Let's, let's, call it, let's call it consequences of being joined to Jesus. And when we're joined to Jesus, we share in all that he is and all that he has done. So if we're joined to Jesus, then we therefore, because we are joined to Jesus, we are, we can be and are, declared in the right, because Jesus is the perfectly righteous Son of God who's fully human, fully obeyed the law, fully made satisfaction for our sins. He's the one in the right uh, before God. And so when we're in him, we share in that truth, and therefore we are justified. The same thing, would, in, in a sense, would be true about sanctification. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, God has placed us in Christ. Christ is our wisdom from God. He's our righteousness. 
He is our sanctification. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. So when we come to be, as a consequence of being united to Jesus Christ, Christ dwells in us, and he begins to change us and shape us, conform us in the power of the Holy Spirit to his holy image. So sanctification also can be, I think, rightly seen, should be rightly seen, as a wonderful consequence of being joined to Jesus. The same would be true of glorification, for instance. Jesus Christ, um, in resurrection and in his ascension, was glorified uh, by the Father. And that glorification of his human body is a truth that when we're united to Jesus Christ also becomes true of us already, but also something we expect uh, to be true, that all that happened to Jesus happens to us. And so it holds together all these wonderful doctrines. Same thing with, you know, resurrection. Jesus is already resurrected. That's why when we're joined to him by the power of the Spirit, as you know, Jonah, we're already, um, as Paul says, you have been resurrected with him. Already you've been resurrected with him because he includes you in himself. That's an awesome truth. And it's also why we expect to be resurrected for the wonderful and strange truth that we already have been in Jesus Christ. So those are four aspects. We could say more, but those are four ways we tend to think about salvation, that if we begin with being joined to Jesus Christ, we can see how scripturally those things are working out. He's the fount of every blessing. And so the first thing that must happen is that we're joined to Jesus, and when that happens, his innumerable blessings fall upon us. Mm. That's the way I would say that. In yeah. short form. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much more. Obviously, uh, you could expand from that. But yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, and in terms of reframing our understanding of salvation, not as justification resulting in you with Christ, but you with Christ, not only resulting, but being the full essence of justification. Um, and in a sense, reorganizing our categories of how we understand who we are in relation to Christ. Because, you know, we can talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Christ. And that's kind of been like the motto mm-hmm. of evangelicalism for the past, you know, 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. Um, but oftentimes, it seems that in our evangelical theology, the way we exercise and oftentimes can write about theology um, can be so judicial, um, so black, so in terms, so legislative. Um, and it's, what I really appreciate about your work is how you incorporate this truth that Christ is relational, not just in, not just as, as a word or polemical statement itself, but as a whole theological outworking of understanding who Christ is in relation to us. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would. Uh, the, the way that that was taught to me was when I saw how, say, Martin Luther and John Calvin talked about justification. I knew they would talk about justification a lot in really wonderful ways. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go, you know, study more about them. But what I began to see was that they had some, they had a prior understanding of a fundamental reality called salvation, essentially, that took place in order that justification was even possible, namely being united to Jesus. They saw justification as a result of a prior you know, essentially comprehensive view of salvation, which was being joined to the Savior. One of the blessings, not all of, one of the blessings of that 
union was to be justified. Another one was to be sanctified. Another one was to be glorified, and so on down the line. The difference for a lot of modern contemporary Christians, especially Protestants or evangelicals, is that because they've lost sight of the reality of being joined to Jesus Christ, they try to start somewhere else. Typically, the victor there has been to start with something like justification, which is understandable. It's a huge, really awesome teaching in Scripture that our sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. What an awesome doctrine. It's, it's impossible to imagine the gospel without it. However, if we start with justification and try to get everywhere else, everywhere else is going to take on the, the, the nature of justification. As we talk about, everything else has to be related to this, uh, this truth that we are, we are judged in the right by God. And you see that, that judge language, the, the judge sort of forensic courtroom language that's there. And that, that is in some respects important. We're breakers of the law. We need to be declared in the right, which is to say not guilty rather than the state that we're in as sinners, which is guilty. That's all very important and needs to be preserved. But that's different than saying the whole of salvation should be understood in those terms because the whole of salvation isn't supposed to be understood in those terms. Part of salvation is supposed to be understood in those terms. So I think the benefit of recovering and retrieving a really robust and thick and uh, deep understanding of union with Christ is that it allows us to have all the wonderful, awesome truths of justification and everything else besides. Yeah, I often hear, um, and many more that would fall maybe into the Reform camp that aren't really necessarily in the tradition of Lutheranism is they would quote, you know, Martin Luther, you know, justification is upon the hinge upon which the gospel hangs. Uh, but maybe from your experience, how have you seen Martin Luther flesh out this idea of union with Christ being primary um, since that statement or oftentimes the working of the works of Martin Luther is often cited as he, this is what the, the, you know, the essence or the, the prolegomena or the beginning step from which we exercise the under, our understanding of the gospel. Um, could you be able to maybe unpack Martin Luther's works more in a holistic manner from what you've seen and how he tries to, how he does emphasize uh, union with Christ? I think I can. I, uh, a lot of the, I noticed that when I did some um, graduate studies in Luther and Calvin, I noticed that the things that we believe to be the most important, we tend to go back into history and find them. That's not necessarily a problem. I think it's a good thing to say, hey, does my understanding of of this or that doctrine or this or this gospel truth, has this been taught by the church as a whole? It's a good thing to ask and go find because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be novel. But what, you know, potential problem there is that you might, you might find, you might just simply only find what you're looking for and no, you know, evidence to the contrary. And so my graduate studies write a whole lot of reading of the sources themselves rather than just someone's account of it, which are also valuable. I recognized that Luther had, like I've mentioned a little bit before, he had, a, he had an understanding of being joined to Jesus that was already there for him as he talked about justification. So when we, when we start our understanding of justification, I'm sorry, understanding of salvation by thinking it in terms of basically being synonymous with being justified, then we go back and read Luther and can 
believe we've found that same thing and only to some only to some extent be right whereas he's working with a prior understanding of being joined to Jesus in which orbit he talks about justification so he's got some really straightforward passages he says as far as justifications concerned we must be so closely cemented and joined and attached to Jesus Christ that he lives in us and and so, therefore, justification is a consequence of this larger reality behind it. He straight up says that sort of a thing. So when he says something like justification is the article by which the church stands or falls, we just incorporate that sort of a phrase into our own understanding that justification is synonymous with salvation. Well, he wasn't. He was assuming that one needs to be joined to Jesus Christ. And in that being joined to Jesus Christ, if we don't get this justification thing right, we could be in a, we could be in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same holds true later for John Calvin, who, as you said earlier, he talks about justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. Well, you don't have to, you know, read very far into, you know, his understanding of salvation to say, to see that he says, the first thing we have to do is recognize that we're joined to Jesus. Then we can talk about the other benefits because it has to be understood in those terms. So when he talks about justification being the main hinge is if we don't get justification right, we're going to have a real problem with how we understand other things. That doesn't mean he hasn't begun earlier with a really deep understanding of being joined to Jesus because he has, and he made it really, really clear. Yeah, and it's important to remember the the context with which Martin Luther and John Kevin were working from and addressing For sure. the the problems that they were addressing within the Catholic Church and their understanding of justification and works mm-hmm. there and what they saw as, you know, being a works based salvation. Obviously that's the whole, you know, reason for why the Reformation spun and happened. Yes. But um to make this in a sense more how we call it, relational to our daily lives, how do you think this doctrine really affects the daily life of the Christian um, and in their, you know, their daily practices as they sp- they spend their time with the Lord in the morning, they go to church, they go to work, they spend time with their family, um, they read, they read scripture. Tell us about how this doctrine would affects the daily life of the Christian. Well, what we, as a rule, what we do and the things that we practice come from an either latent or explicit conviction about who we believe we are. It's sort of one of those uh, axioms, truth axioms in the world, whether, you, whether you're conscious of it or not, who you truly believe you most truly are frames and shapes and determines what you believe you should do or what you do. So it makes a great deal of difference whether one thinks that they really are joined to Jesus or they are not. Because it's a, it's a fundamental kind of a question about who I really am and who I am, really am in relation to God and who I am in relation to even other Christians for that matter. And so, at least for me, it, it, it brings a depth to my understanding of who I am and who I'm supposed to who I am and what I'm supposed to do because I came to realize the truth that the most important thing about me, I'm saying this in individualist terms, but the most important thing about us uh, being Christian, the most important thing is that 
we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That is the most important thing. So if that most important thing is gone, I can still no doubt grasp onto important things like scripture reading and have a concern for the church and to love others. Those are all great things. But I can tell you that the truth and depth of meaning that comes into our lives when we realize, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And then he says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. If you took out the, I've been crucified with Christ, but you took out the, I no longer live, Christ lives in me, you've got a whole different understanding of, you know, of being saved, for one, and Christian life, for two. Who is this person that's supposed to be doing the thing that they're doing? Has that person, does that person live any longer? Is it Christ who lives in them? So it's made a whole great deal of difference in my life. I can have, let's put this in by way of a, a uh, let's say, a worldly analogy. I can, I can have friends and have deep relationships with friends and um, enjoy time with friends. That's all important. That's not as it should be. But I can also be married to my wife, and those aren't the same kinds of relationships, and they have, they have different sorts of meanings. And so the way I want to apply that is our relationship to Jesus is much more like marriage and the kind of intimacy that profound, personal, uh, deep, deep intimacy and joining that takes place than it is like merely a friendship, although it includes that too. And um, I think most people can understand that one lives differently with one's wife than one does with one's friend, or one relates to the world differently depending on whether they think they're married to someone or just friends with someone. It makes a big difference. Just talking about sort of answering your question, what difference would it make if in one's life, if one really believed he or she was joined to Jesus? Those are some of the ways that I would answer that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I really, yeah, what I've also appreciated about this understanding of salvation is how it also relates to Christ and his church, but it also translates into into how we understand what marriage is and that we see this reflection as well, theologically speaking, of you know, to, the two becoming one flesh. Mm-hmm. And we see that in conjunction with the theological understanding of us being incorporated into Christ. And it's not just we go by knowing that our that a draconian father has said, you know, you're forgiven, but rather, you know, we are incorporated to this Godhead uh, through and in and through the work of Christ by faith and this great incorporation of love. Um, and that I, I love uh, the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. And that's also, I think that really partnered well with also the stuff I learned from your class as well about how, Christ is not just there to say, I'm your friend, but he's saying, I'm one with you. You are one with me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And all these different aspects really help to transform our daily understanding um, of who Christ is, who, who God incarnate himself is in our daily lives. For certain. You just mentioned the ramifications of understanding what it means to be joined to Jesus for something like a 
ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church, they're ready at hand. When you're talking about what it means to be saved and you say it means, you know, fundamentally it means to be joined to Jesus, that's almost the same answer. It could be the exact same, exact same answer you would give to what does it mean to be the church? Well, it means to be the bride of Christ, to be joined to Jesus. And I think it's great that the two answers can be the same coming from the same great truth, that the truth of salvation is the truth of the church and vice versa. If, if, if we can begin speaking and believing that way again, we'll be uh, far greater in touch with our own history, own history as Protestant evangelicals, and also with the history of the church at large. And more importantly still, we'll begin to see those profound connections right there in the Holy Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad you pointed that. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, I think that's definitely something I've begun to realize as I, uh, you know, I've traveled overseas plenty of times in my life, and it's not just that other believers are other people that believe the same thing, but having this presupposition that we're united to Christ and we're one body, and not that, that, that just being some sort of abstract concept that we throw out, but a, a lived reality made me realize so much more of the importance of, and I, I use the lowercase c word for this, like the Catholicity of the church, that we're all one in Christ. We are all sons and daughters, beloved sons and daughters um, of our Father in heaven. And that reality just translated so much more into my lives when I see another brother or sister from another culture or country or language. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same cultural presuppositions about what, like, you know, what what even is, um, like, a good family. Like, maybe those values can be different. Um, but what we have in common is that we're united to Christ. We are one with him, one body, um, all incorporated into him. So, Dr. Johnson, as we wrap up our time, there is um, one question that I like to ask every professor um, and some professors don't like it. Some professors do. Some professors just kind of like to cheat a little bit and say like, oh, I'm going to throw like three books out there. Uh, but Dr. Johnson, what is one book, um, obviously aside from scripture that you think every Christian should read and maybe more specifically in regards to your field of study? I can see why some people hedged a bit on that question. That <laughs> yeah. is a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough thing. Cause you have to know what, well, you said, so you said every Christian should read, and Bible not included because that should be obvious to us. So, okay, you're forcing me to answer, right? So I'm forced to answer that particular question <laughs> just to be just to have it all qualified. I would say probably Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity, hmm. for so many reasons. It's full of delight and joy. It gets at some of these wonderful truths we're talking about. It's very accessible for almost any Christian. Probably, I don't know, what would you say, Jonah? Probably as early as high school. Yeah. It's yeah. accessible to read, and it's. And I have my PhD in theology. I read it with great delight. Uh, he does a great job of, of delighting in who God is and showing that, you know, that God gives himself to us in Jesus Christ, that we can share in his life these sorts of awesome truths that many of us have forgotten about that are in Scripture. He does a great job, accessible. It's got humor in it. It's not, it's not torturously long. And so for all those reasons, I think it's a great example of what vibrant, churchly, joyful theology should look like. So there's my answer. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us one book. I Mm -hmm. will definitely second that, what you were saying. I remember reading that for your Systematic Theology 1 class, and it blew my mind away. Um, And not only did it blow my mind away, but it blew my heart away. Yeah. Um, And that's the beauty of that book as well. Um, And it's like, it's only been, I forgot exactly when it was written, I think in the last 10 years, I believe. Um, For sure. Very recent book, but I, I think you mentioned this too in your classes, that it will be a monumental book. Um, throughout the history of the church as we move forward and that it's so accessible. So easy to read. I sent it to my sister. I was like, you need to read this um, this book, and I would highly recommend that. I would also highly recommend to the listeners here reading uh, Dr. Johnson's book, um, One with Christ, in Evangelical Theology of Salvation. Um, would highly recommend that book. And he has other books he's written as well with uh, Dr. Clark. Um, but that book I would highly recommend if you want to explore this concept more and really absorb what uh, what does it mean to be one with Christ and have be united to Christ as well. But uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we've appreciated having you on here so much. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonah Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is the song Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.